But we are grateful for our global partners and grateful to you as a congregation for your commitment to, to prayer and financial support as the gospel goes forth around the world. I want to invite you to open uh, your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're in the fifth major section of the book, which goes from chapters 28 through 35. And if you remember, we've entitled this section, Woes and Wonders, Judgments and Joys. And this section includes a series of warnings, but also some incredible passages of hope and of grace. If you remember from our previous uh, messages on this section, it's organized around the pronouncement of six woes, which are pronounced against six different categories of sin. So you have woe to the drunkards in chapter 28, woe to spiritual apathy in chapter 29, woe to those who live a double life in chapter 29, verse 15, Woe to rebellious children who won't listen in chapter 30. Woe to those who trust in human powers in chapter 31. And then woe to tyrannical leaders in chapter 33. So two weeks ago, we discussed that first woe, woe to the drunkards. Chapter 28, verse 1 says, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards. And then last week, we studied the second and third woes, so woe to spiritual apathy in chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. If you remember uh, chapter 29, verse 1 says, Woe, O Ariel, the city where David once camped. And the reason for that woe is given in verse 13 when it says, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And so chapter 29 gives a woe to those who are spiritually apathetic. And then last week we also covered then the third woe, which is woe to those who live a double life. In chapter 29, verses 15 and 16, it says, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, Who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. So this section, chapter 29, verses 15 through 24, is woe to those who live a double life. Now as I mentioned briefly last week, the good news is that Isaiah chapter 29 ends with a prophecy of hope. Instead of woe, you can receive wonder. Instead of judgment, you can receive joy. So before we move on to chapter 30, I want to begin this morning just by pointing out a couple things from that joyous uh, prophecy of hope at the end of chapter 29. Notice in chapter 29, verses 18 and 19, there is a messianic prophecy given. It says, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. This is a messianic prophecy. And in Matthew chapter 11, we see a, a situation where, if you recall, John the Baptist is in prison. And while he's in prison, he begins to have doubts that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so he sends messengers to ask Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, the messengers ask Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And 
Jesus replies to that inquiry by citing messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, especially Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18. So in his reply, he cites two or three different verses, but one of the main ones he cites is this one right here, chapter 29, verse 18. In Matthew 11, verse 4, it says this, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And that is kind of a compilation of two or three verses from the Old Testament, including several phrases from Isaiah 29, verse 18. So Jesus answers, yes, I am the expected one. I am the promised Messiah. And he proved it by healing the blind, the deaf, and taking care and ministering to the afflicted. And so this is a reminder that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And of course, if he can heal the sick, he can give sight to the blind, heal the deaf, then he can certainly keep every promise that he has made to us. And so that messianic prophecy definitely is one that gives great hope. I want you also to notice from the end of chapter 29 that verse 22 makes a connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the future redemption and restoration of Israel. Look at uh, chapter 29 verses 22 through 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth and those who criticize will accept Instruction. This is a prophecy of the future redemption and restoration of Israel. But I want you to notice what he says at the beginning of verse 22. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. So why does he mention Abraham here? Well, by reminding the readers that he redeemed Abraham, God is encouraging the children of Israel to believe that he will be faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants. He reminds them of what he did for Abraham in the past in order to convince them of what he's going to do for them in the future. And this gives us a really helpful and practical principle which we can apply to our own lives. It's a principle which is found throughout Scripture, but I want to kind of point it out to you here. Remembering what God has done for others in the past strengthens us to face the trials of the present and the uncertainty of the future. Remembering what God has done for others in the past strengthens us to face the trials of the present and the uncertainty of the future. God is saying to the children of Israel, I'm the one who redeemed Abraham. I made a covenant with Abraham and I'm going to keep it. So in the future, there will be this great restoration. And we need to remember the same thing. If God redeemed Abraham, then he will be faithful to me too. If God, for example, could help Joseph overcome the abuse that he endured, then I can overcome any abuse or suffering that I've endured. To move it more into the 
the nearer past. If God could give someone like Johnny Erickson Tata a joyful spirit and a fruitful ministry after being paralyzed from the neck down, then he can do the same for me as I face a difficult health challenge. In other words, if God has been faithful to his promise to Abraham, he will be faithful to his promise to the descendants of Abraham. And if he has been faithful to them, he will be faithful to us. He who redeemed Abraham, verse 22 says, will keep his promise to redeem, regather, and restore Israel. And that faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant, to the sons of Israel is a reminder of God's character. He is faithful. He's a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And the fact that he will keep his promises to the sons of Israel reminds us that he will keep every promise he's made and he will fulfill them fully. Well, that brings us to chapter 30, which is where the focus of the message is going to be. And chapter 30 contains the fourth warning against the woes of sin, but it also contains some of the most beautiful and precious promises and revelations about God's love, his compassion, his mercy, and his grace in the entire Bible. So we're going to begin by studying the warning of woe in chapter 30, but we're going to end with the hope of God's grace and then pick up on that theme of God's grace next week. So the fourth woe in this section is woe to rebellious children who won't listen. And this is chapter 30, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way through the end of the chapter. Look at Isaiah 30, verse 1. It says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. And then skip down to verses 8 through 11. God tells Isaiah, Now go, write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, You must not see visions, and to the prophets, You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This chapter is a warning of woe to rebellious children who refuse to listen. Now, when I was growing up, our family took in at various points in time several troubled teens and young adults, rebellious teens, uh, from uh, my parents' circle of ministry. Parents who were kind of at their wits' end with rebellious children would ask my parents for help. And so for a few weeks and sometimes a few months, we would have a guest living in our basement. And we as kids were not allowed to go down to their area or spend time with them without our parents being present. And they weren't allowed to come upstairs without permission. But other than that, they became part of our family life. Every meal, they went on vacations with us. They were part of our family during the time my parents were trying to help them. And some of those young people responded, repented, were restored, began following the Lord, got their lives in order, went back to their families. But sadly, some did not respond. I remember uh, one of those who didn't respond 
uh, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was when actually just accidentally I went into my dad's uh, office where he prepares his sermons and the guy was hiding in there smoking in my, sitting in my dad's chair. And uh, so it's the only time I've ever seen anyone smoking in a pastor's office. <laughs> and uh, it was the last time I saw that particular uh, young teen. That was one of a series of things he had not abided by the things he had agreed to when he came to live with us. Another poignant memory I have is when I was maybe six or seven and I was sitting in the car in our station wagon. Uh, We were kind of squeezed in uh, because a teenage girl uh, went with us to visit our relatives out of state. So I was six or seven and sitting next to her, her parents had asked my parents for help and we took her with us on vacation out of state as part of her parents' efforts to get her away uh, from a, a very abusive, druggy boyfriend. And I knew that the reason that she was going with us on vacation is because she had gotten into trouble when you're six or seven, right? That's kind of your understanding. I knew that some man had been very mean to her and had hurt her and had got her hooked on drugs, which were a terrible thing. And that's kind of the limits of my understanding as a six and seven-year-old. But I remember on vacation as we're driving, watching her take a pen and write this man's name on her leg and draw hearts around it and all kinds of flowery stuff. And I remember just being absolutely astounded and baffled. Why would she want to be with a guy who was ruining her life? That particular girl's mom was like an aunt to us. Her dad was a very close friend of my father's, was a beloved elder in our church. He was a very wise and gentle and a godly man of prayer who had been serving as an elder in our church, but he eventually chose to step down from the elder board uh, because his daughter became so rebellious. They had two other kids. One of those kids became a missionary. The other does inner city ministry and those other kids were really my spiritual role models growing up and so there was such a stark contrast amongst the three children two who not only followed the Lord but served him in some amazing ways and then one who chose the completely opposite path and I think observing that early on in life taught me an important lesson and that's this being a good and godly parent doesn't guarantee that you'll have good and godly kids And also, it means that if someone has a rebellious child, it doesn't mean they've been a bad parent. And I I want some of the heartbroken parents in the congregation to hear that. Being a good and godly parent doesn't guarantee that you'll have good and godly kids. Children are not widgets. You know, if you're a good engineer, you can make a good widget, and you can kind of guarantee quality control, but children have their own soul, and they make their own choices before the Lord and in life and so sometimes even very good and godly parents can have horribly rebellious children so if you are interacting with someone who has a rebellious child don't make the assumption that they've been a bad parent sadly some of the most wonderful parents that I've ever known have had some very rebellious children And if you are one of those heartbroken parents, my heart goes out to you. I have some understanding from observing it in 
these families of the misery that you're going through, but remain faithful to the Lord. Just be a faithful parent and pray for your child. Well, this teenage girl, during the time she spent with us, kind of gave me a little bit vicariously a front row seat to what rebellion does in a life. The heartbreak and the anguish that rebellion causes to the person who rebels, but not only to them, but to their parents and their siblings. And I saw firsthand the foolishness of the self-destructive and miserable path that she was on. And by the grace of God, later on in life, she did repent and turn to the Lord, and there was a great restoration there. But for many years, it was a great heartbreak for her family. And I'm grateful that the Lord gave me the opportunity to observe the destructive consequences of rebellion at such a young age. Because later on in my teenage years, perhaps at some low times spiritually for me, I thankfully never really seriously considered rebellion because I'd already seen how wicked it is. I'd already seen how foolish it is, how destructive it is, and how much misery it causes to yourself and to everyone you love. And so I think some of those early experiences really protected me later on. And I'd also say this uh, to parents. I've said it before. The best defense is a good offense. You know, my parents, uh, you know, brought us with, with some good principles of wisdom and safeguards into situations where we observed the brokenness of sin. We were deeply engaged as a family with the broken homes of other people. And when you see the misery caused by sin, it definitely protects you against going down that road yourself. And so um, as Dr. Richard Vargas, he's the director of IFCA, uh, said in a fantastic message at the IFCA convention I was at a couple weeks ago, he said, as believers, we're firemen. And firemen don't run from fires, they run to fires. Now, they go in prepared and trained and, and protected, but we don't run from difficult situations, we run to difficult situations. And so I hope that we as a congregation will be firemen, that we will run into the flames and rescue souls that are being consumed by the deceitfulness of sin and of rebellion. But rebellion is destructive and it is wicked. In fact, it is so destructive and so wicked that the Bible says that rebellion is just as bad as practicing witchcraft. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23 says, rebellion is like witchcraft and insubordination is like wickedness and idolatry. So the rebellious, insubordinate person is committing a sin that God says is akin to witchcraft and idolatry. Well, why would God equate those types of sin together? Well, the reason is because when someone rebels against God and the authority structures that God has established, their parents and the government and, and church uh, authority, when someone is in rebellion against authority, they're rebelling against God's authority ultimately, and they are therefore mimicking the attitudes and actions of the first rebel, who is Satan himself. Rebellion is like witchcraft, and insubordination is like wickedness and idolatry. So with the seriousness of rebellion in, in mind, let's look more closely at what Isaiah chapter 30 has to say 
to the rebellious sons of Israel in the time of Isaiah. And it's important to remember this is the context. This is written to them, to the children of Israel in the time of Isaiah. But I think as we look at what is said to them, we'll be able to draw some very practical lessons for ourselves and our own situations as well. I want to just put on the screen for you how I've kind of outlined chapter 30. Verses 1 through 14 are the indictment against the rebellious children of Israel. And they're indicted for their rebellion against God and their replacement of God, of trust in God, with trust in other sources. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Then in the first part of verse 15 is the invitation. The invitation that God gives to them to repent and then to rest in him. And then at the end of verse 15 through verse 17, we see the consequences of their refusal to respond to God's invitation, and that is the coming invasion. And that invasion is going to come because of their rejection of God and their refusal to respond to his gracious invitation. And then the chapter ends in verses 18 through 33 with God's sovereign intention. His sovereign intention, intention, which is the redemption and restoration of the children of Israel. So the passage really begins with the darkness of rebellion but ends with the bright hope of God's sovereign and gracious intention. So let's begin by looking at the indictment against the children of Israel given in chapter 30 verses 1 through 14. And the indictment is for their rebellion and replacement. Look at chapter 30 verses 1 and 2. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. You know, the Egyptians and the Egyptian pharaohs are the ones who had enslaved Israel, who had oppressed Israel. They were followers of a, of a very dark and pagan religion. And yet, the people of Israel are turning to Pharaoh for help rather than to God, turning to the Egyptians, their former enslavers, for protection rather than to the one who had rescued them from Egypt. This is rebellion, and it is replacement of God with hope and trust in someone else. So God indicts the children of Israel for two major sins. Rebellion against him and then replacing him as their help and their protector, the source of their trust. They said, should we trust God or Pharaoh? And they chose Pharaoh. So they rebelled and then they replaced. Instead of obeying God, they rebelled against him. And when the consequences of their sin and rebellion came crashing down on them in the form of invading armies, they replaced God by turning to earthly powers for help and protection instead of him. If you remember in the context of Isaiah, you see this shifting alliances. You know, when the northern tribes are coming on Judah, they turn to the Assyrians for help. And then when the Assyrians are coming, they turn to Egypt for help. They're always turning to some human power for help rather than turning to God. So they're indicted both for their rebellion and their replacement of trust in God with trust for human powers. Now, as we go through chapter 30, verses 1 through 14, it's going to describe the rebellion of the children of Israel. And I think from the, the description of their rebellion, we can draw principles about rebellious children in general. The children 
of Israel rebelled in these ways and we learn these lessons from them. So first of all, we learn that rebellious children reject God's plan. This is where it begins. They reject God's plan. In verse 30, verse 1, it says, they execute a plan, but not mine. See, God has a plan. He had a plan for his people. He had a will for them. In the New Testament, it says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. God has a plan and a purpose for you, but rebellion begins when you reject God's plan and substitute it for one of your own making. You execute a plan, but not his Next, rebellious children choose the wrong friends. It says at the end of verse 1, they make an alliance, but not of my spirit. They ally themselves with the wrong friends. You know, the children of Israel tried to find their safety with the Egyptians, and in our context, rebellious children often find some peer group that will validate them where they can feel like they can belong or whatever, but they, they ally themselves, they bind themselves, they make friends with those who will corrupt good morals, right? The Bible says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. They make an alliance, but not one from God's spirit. Next, rebellious children add sin to sin. At the end of verse one, it says, they add sin to sin, and this is the downward spiral of rebellion. The rebellious teen or the rebellious young adult or the rebellious child does something wrong and then to cover up that wrong, they lie. And then to cover up the lie, they tell another lie and they are in this downward spiral for sin. And eventually that turns to having incredible guilt over sin. So, so they drink or do drugs to kind of squelch the feelings of guilt and then that just adds more sin to more sin and it becomes a downward spiral. They add sin to sin. Next, rebellious children trust in earthly powers. So they're in this downward spiral. They know they're in trouble. They know things are going the wrong way. So to whom will they turn? And rebellious children trust in earthly powers. Verse two, they proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. They turn to the wrong sources for help. Next, rebellious children are filled with shame. Look at verses three through five. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. Rebellious children are filled with shame because they bind themselves to those who cannot help them, who cannot profit them, who only drag them down. They go to them for belonging. They go to them for help. They go to them for validation, but they find in the end only the shame and reproach of belonging to a group who is in enmity with God. Next, rebellious children face a hard road. Look at verses six and seven. The oracle concerning the beast of the Negev through a land of distress and anguish from where comes lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the back of young donkeys and their treasures on camel humps to a people who cannot profit them. Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, 
Therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Rebellious children face a hard road. The children of Israel decided to make an alliance with, with Egypt. So what did they do? They piled treasure on the backs of donkeys and of camels, and they had to go south through that desert, which I've ridden on a bus through this desert. It's a very difficult journey, especially if you're not on a bus but on a camel. But you're going to go through a desert in order to take your treasure to the Egyptians and to try to purchase their protection. So you're going to take all of your wealth, you're going to pile it on these animals, and you're going to go through a desert, the Lord says. This is going to be a hard road. You're going to pass through a land of distress and anguish where there's lioness and lion, viper and serpents, and you're going to carry your riches to a people who can't even help you, whose help is vain and empty. You're going to spend all this time and all this agony and all this treasure, and you're going to get nothing in return, just emptiness this is the hard path of the rebellious person they turn to this friend group for help and they 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 devote they turn from their families to these friends and they pour themselves out in these friends and then they get betrayed and dumped by those friends dumped by a boyfriend dumped by a girlfriend they go here and there and they spend all the time and effort they get into drugs they spend huge sums of money and in the end they're left empty because none of those sources can help them. Like Egypt back then, those things can be characterized as those whose help is vain and empty. But rebellious children face a hard road because they're looking to the wrong source for help and salvation and fulfillment. Next, rebellious children refuse to listen. Good verses 8 through 9. God tells Isaiah, go and write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. In other words, God is saying, Isaiah, write down in their presence that I told them that Egypt cannot help them, that Egypt's help will be vain and empty. Write it down now so that when it happens, they'll remember I warned them in advance. And Isaiah did write this down and they did go to Egypt and ask for help and they bought the, the Egyptians and the Egyptians half-heartedly sent up an army and the Assyrian army just crushed the Egyptians. The Egyptians ran away and it left the people of Israel helpless and ashamed and humiliated and oppressed. Rebellious children refused to listen. Look at verse 9. It says, for this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. The Lord says, don't go down to Egypt for help. Turn to me. They refuse to listen to his instruction. Rebellious children refuse to listen. Next, rebellious children don't want to hear sound doctrine. Look at verse 10. Who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. They don't want to hear sound doctrine. Don't tell me what is right. This is the spirit of our age, right? We don't want to hear it. Stop preaching the truth. Stop teaching what is right. We know that they're so committed to not hearing what is right that they're even trying to make legal moves in order to eventually restrict the ability of others to tell them what is true. 
They don't want to hear the truth. Next, rebellious children gravitate to false teachers. They don't want to hear the truth, but here's what they do want to hear. Look at the next phrase in verse 10. They say to the prophets and seers, speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Speak to us pleasant words. Tell us what we want to hear. Sadly, even as I'm speaking here right now, in thousands of so-called churches and thousands of so-called pulpits, thousands of so-called preachers are doing exactly this. They are telling people what they want to hear. They are telling them pleasant words. And they are prophesying illusions. Illusions. It's not true. But rebellious children gravitate to those who will tell them what they want to hear. New Testament says in the last times that people will gather to themselves false teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. False teachers are hugely popular because there's a huge audience for ear tickling. Not much of an audience for truth telling. Well next, rebellious children cut off those who try to restrain them to those who continue to tell them the truth, they don't like it. And so eventually they tell those people, verse 11, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. We've ha- I don't want to hear it anymore, Mom and Dad. I don't want to hear it anymore, Pastor. I don't want to hear it anymore, Christian friend. Get out of my way get out of my path I'm going my way leave me alone they cut off those who try to restrain them next they reject the word of God verse 12 says therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel since you have rejected this word they reject the word of God by the way I want you to notice something between verse 11 and verse 12 in verse 11 the people say Get out of our way. We don't want to hear anything more about God and his holiness. And what's the immediate response by Isaiah? Thus says the Holy One. This is very instructive for us. When they tell us, shut up, stop telling us what's right and what's true, we don't want to hear anything more about God and his rules and his holiness or anything like that. Get out of our way, be quiet. We just say, thus says the Lord. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. Since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. Rebellious children reject the word of God. Since you have rejected this word, this fall is coming. Next, notice that rebellious children hurt themselves and others. Verse 12 says that they have put their trust in oppression. This is the concept of afflicting others. And as a kid, I watched how teenagers, they're not even adults yet, but how they would oppress and afflict their parents and their siblings and everyone around them. They made everybody else's life miserable. They were truly little tyrants. 
trying to establish themselves as kings and to require everyone to bow to them. Rebellious children hurt themselves and others. They put their trust in oppression. They become little tyrants. Next it says they put their trust in guile. This is someone who is cunning and deceitful. Rebellious children are cunning and habitual liars. They know how to manipulate. They know how to deceive. They know how to hide. They know how to maneuver. They are filled with guile. But sadly, rebellious children will fall suddenly. Therefore, this iniquity, verse 13 says, will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found amongst its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. In those days, if you dropped a pot accidentally and it broke into pieces, it's too valuable to just throw it all away. You would save the larger pieces and you'd use them as, as like a scoop for to get ashes out of your fireplace or maybe to scoop water from a cistern into, a, a, into a, a, another pot. You would try to kind of save the broken pieces. But this prophecy is saying, look, this path is going to lead to such a destruction that no piece of your life will be left untouched. You'll be so shattered that there won't even be a piece large, large enough to scrap, scrape ashes from a fireplace. Total collapse of a life. This passage poignantly describes the rebellion of the people of Israel against God in the time of Isaiah, but it should be a warning to all of us and especially to our youth, to our children, to our middle schoolers, to our high schoolers, to our college students. Young people, do not rebel. Don't rebel against God. Don't rebel against your parents. Don't rebel against spiritual authority in the church. Don't rebel against the government. Do not rebel because rebellion has terrible consequences. Rebellion against authority has terrible consequences. And Satan is going to try to convince you and you'll try to convince yourself, I'm not rebelling. Like this, what pastor's talking about, that's not me. I'm just following my heart. I'm just standing up for my rights. I'm just getting rid of these overly restrictive rules. I'm just being an adult and demanding that other people treat me like the adult I am at age 14. You can tell yourself that. You're just following your heart. You're just standing up for yourself. You're just getting rid of ridiculous, overbearing rules from your parents. Tell yourself what you want, but you are following the first rebel. You're following Satan. You're following Satan and heading down his dark, evil, and destructive path, so my appeal to you is turn back before your life is dashed to pieces like a jar smashed on the floor. Turn back before your morals collapse like a teetering wall. Turn back before you're left with shattered pieces. And that's not just me appealing to you, it's God himself appealing to you. Look at the next section, which begins in verse 15. God's invitation to the rebellious person is repentance and rest. Verse 15, for thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved in quietness and trust. Trust. 
is your strength. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Turn from your wicked ways. Instead of talking back and arguing and cursing, learn quietness and trust. Go from a hard heart to a soft heart. Uh, Hebrew scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains the terms used here, writing, quote, the Hebrew term for repentance, shuva, refers to a return in the sense of conversion. And the Hebrew term for rest, nachat, refers to a rest in the sense of cessation from attempting to receive salvation through human activity. See, God says, in repentance and rest you will be saved. Why repentance and rest? Well, repentance is turning from your wicked ways to Christ. But why does he say, and rest? Because, see, one of the issues with rebellious people is they're, they're going down the wrong way and they feel conviction of sin, but they're like, you know what? I've gone too far. God will never take me back. I've ruined everything. There's no way home for me now. They're like the prodigal son and they don't, they don't think that, they forget that the father is waiting for them at the end of the road. But God says in repentance and then rest, just turn and you'll find I'm right there. And you can just collapse into my arms and find your soul's rest in me. In repentance and rest, you need to turn from sin to Christ and then you need to trust in his grace, in his finished work, what he did for you, not what you can do to fix all the wrong you've done. Repent and trust. Turn from your rebellion, place your faith in God. Quietly rest in him. If you'll do these things, the Lord promises you both salvation and strength. It's not weakness to collapse into the arms of God. It is there that you will find true strength. You want to be a big adult. Turn from sin to Christ and you will find both salvation and strength. You'll be a big man instead of a little weasel. I hate to put it that way. Rebellion is a hard road which leads to an even harder destiny, so heed God's invitation to repent and rest. Well, that was what the people of Israel needed to do, but the last phrase of verse 15 records the tragic reality of their response, at least, to God's invitation. At the end of verse 15, he, he, we read the tragic words, but you were not willing. In repentance and rest, you will be saved, and quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing and so the next several verses prophetically declare the consequences the people of Israel were going to face because of their rebellion. They were going to face invasion because they had rejected the Lord and they had refused his invitation. They just weren't willing. You know, so oftentimes rebellious teens and rebellious young adults, they go down a road and they're miserable. You're like, why do you keep going? And you know what the answer is? They're just simply stubborn. They are miserable. They know they're miserable. They know they're going the wrong way. They know they need to repent, but they're too proud to humble themselves. They're too proud to admit they've been wrong. They're too proud to, to turn back to God and to their families. Too proud to ask forgiveness. So they just continue on in irrational stubbornness. God offers them repentance and rest, but they're not willing. And so they try to run. Notice that 
verses 16 and, 7 says, 16 and 17 says, you said no. God says, repent and rest. And he says, no, we'll flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. We'll ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. See, the rebellious person refuses God's invitation, keeps going his own way, and then he tries to run away from his problems. They just try to run away from their problems. The problem is, is there is nowhere to run when you're running from sin, which is in your own heart. You can't get away from your problems when the problem is here. You'll take it with you wherever you go. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will catch up to you. The consequences of sin will catch up to you. So stop running. Stop being stubborn and repent and find your rest in God. Well, we're gonna end here for this morning, but before we do, I wanna just give you a taste of next week's message because what comes next are some of the most beautiful words ever written. Here are these rebellious people who rejected God's invitation to repentance and rest. They run away, and yet verse 18 says, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Where does the turn begin? It begins when somewhere in the heart a longing for God dawns. And we're going to see next week what happens when a longing for God dawns in a rebellious heart. Lord, it amazes us that despite our sin and our rebellion, you are a God of grace and compassion. Lord, to hear your heart for your rebellious children, that you long to be gracious, that you wait on high to have compassion. Lord, these are such precious and beautiful truths. Lord, your word says, how blessed are all who long for you. Lord, I pray that if there is a rebellious heart in this sanctuary, that in their heart would dawn a simple longing for you and that from there you would do a marvelous work of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, please stand. Let's close our service with the doxology.